You're listening to Rashkin Report. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Yuri Rashkin, and I'm excited to welcome to the program an author and a historian, Yuri Filstinski. Yuri is returning to our program to uh, discuss the topic that is an area of his expertise and I think a topic of much interest for our listeners and viewers, um, and that is uh, the relationship between Kremlin and uh, the President Trump's uh, administration. Um, this is something that's been covered so widely now that it is almost hard to gauge what is common knowledge and what is not common knowledge anymore. So um, let's just reset where we are. And uh, Yuri, welcome to the program. How are, what, what are your thoughts on what is going on? Are you feeling kind of relieved that there's so much attention being paid to uh, Russian involvement? You're going, you know, this is what I've been talking about. Or are you uh, concerned uh, that not enough attention is being paid and we're ignoring some obvious things we should be paying attention to? Well, I'm relieved, meaning that uh, what we discussed for the last literally 12 months is now becoming common sense, meaning that uh, more and more people come to understanding that they're actually was an agreement between uh, Kremlin or people from Kremlin and uh, people from Trump's administration or maybe if, uh, between Putin and President Trump themselves. And uh, I think we more, more will look into actual policy of President Trump, more we understand about this possible agreement uh, between Trump and President Putin. Because after you know many months in office, we still did not hear a single critical word uh, coming from the mouth of President Trump uh, towards Putin, Russia, Russian policy, Russian politics, Russian government, Russian regime. Uh, whatever Putin is doing, he is getting positive remarks from President Trump, even when he is expelling hundreds of American diplomats from Russia. Uh, whatever he is doing in Syria, he is still getting positive remarks. Uh, all we see and hear from Trump that he is not ready to criticize Putin. And since we do understand and do know that Putin is not a good guy at all, then of course we have to ask ourselves and we have to answer the question why. And the only reasonable explanation why after many months in office, Trump still does not find adequate words to be critical of today's Russia is because there is a firm agreement that under no circumstances he is allowed to criticize Putin himself. Now, the meeting that we have just observed that took place in Vietnam that was very brief, 
uh, and it seemed like only a picture was there was just a you know photo opportunity there for Trump and Putin to communicate. Um, it's there's some interesting different ways of looking at that, and I was curious to see how you're looking at it because on one hand, it's possible to say that a photo between Putin and Trump is really all that Mr. Putin may be needing. He wants just some some proof that uh, this is his man, and he can show that uh, Trump continues to be his, so to say, and, you know, just to body language and those kinds of things. But on the other hand, we've just read that the person who is working for like a State Department in Russia, um, so so for Russian State Department, and the person who was responsible for arranging the meeting at at, at that uh, summit in Vietnam uh, between Putin and Trump has been uh, found mysteriously dead. He drowned in his own bathtub. So, um, and Putin did say that people who are... Uh, you know, who who messed this up are going to be punished and respond, people responsible be held responsible. So maybe this was a rather important opportunity that was missed. Um, what do you think? I think from the very beginning, when uh, several people from Trump's administration, including General Flynn, including Kushner, were having questionable uh on formal meetings with uh, Russian Ambassador Kislyak, uh, they discussed mainly one very important issue, an establishment of secure channel of communication between Trump and Putin, or between White House and Kremlin, uh, trying to avoid usual, uh, you know, standard formal ways of communication, which always existed between two governments. In other words, uh, Trump was trying to establish a private channel of communication with Putin, so he would be able to talk to him without others listening. And under others, I uh, do uh, mean the, the uh, you know, U.S. institutions which are responsible for this kind of communication. Now, We've seen several attempts uh, of Trump to uh, to create a situation when he would be able to talk to Putin alone. Uh, all of those uh, cases were very questionable and unusual. They would go usually against protocol. Uh, Trump would be uh, trying to be literally alone uh, with Putin, uh, with a Russian translator only. I think uh, this is uh, understood uh, in Washington now, and I think people who are responsible for U.S. foreign policy are trying to avoid situations when Trump is left alone with Putin, because everybody is suspicious. I'm quite sure that even those people who work for Trump now, being members of his cabinet and being members of his administration, and who, uh, by the rules of game, have to support him and could not allow themselves to be critical of, of the president, even they understand that it's uh, very damaging uh, for, for the U.S. Uh, policy and for the U.S. to leave Trump and Putin alone, and they probably try to sabotage this kind of meetings. I think that's precisely what happened in, in Vietnam. I think that's precisely why 
uh, Trump and Putin had just several seconds alone. By the way, those several seconds were used Trump in order to ask Putin whether he was involved in you know, U.S. elections, and Putin twice replied no, and Trump accepted this answer is as you know sufficient enough. And later, by the way, the Russian side, of course, stated that this question was never asked. So, as usual, uh, Trump and the, the Russian side of Putin have different understanding of what, what, uh, what was asked and what was replied to those questions. But one way or another, uh, yes, I think the uh, uh, U.S. personnel, uh, which is responsible for foreign policy and for communications between Trump and Putin, trying to do their best prevent, to prevent their meeting. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report. I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin, and my guest today is a historian and author of several books on secret service in Soviet Union and in Russia, Yuri Filshtinsky. Um, Yuri, what are your thoughts on the relationship between Putin and Trump as it is colored through um, the fact that uh, Putin has all this secret service background and, uh, and Trump seems to be so um, easily swayed by people saying nice things to him? Um, is this an opportunity for manipulation, or or is it possible that Putin and Trump really do just get along because they're both, I don't know, authoritarians who just like each other? Well, they do not really get along because, as we just discussed, they didn't have chance to to be alone. But I think what started some time ago as a uh, business project for Trump and as a PR action for the Russian government uh, involved in their struggle against uh, Clinton for, for personal reasons, uh, ended with Trump being elected. And I think it's fair to say that in the very beginning, the Russian uh, participation in the elections uh, was not taken seriously in Russia, and it's only after Trump was selected by Republicans as a candidate, the game started to look very serious. And from that moment, the Russian government, uh, mainly Kremlin, mainly Putin, and we have to understand that in today's Russia, everything is done with direct knowledge and direct order coming from Putin. Uh, the Russian government played, uh, I, I think, very important and probably crucial and critical uh, part and role in this election. Because, again, as we know, it was very close. Uh, it was very close, and any help was very important and useful. And the help which was coming uh, from Russia was very critical, very timely, very clever, uh, well-organized, uh, both technically, uh, from PR point of view, it was well-organized, always, always timely. So I think it's fair to say that uh, Kremlin helped Trump and that Kremlin became president thanks to uh, 
that Trump became a president thanks to, to Kremlin. So I, I think it is fair to say that Trump became president thanks to Kremlin. This was not the only reason for him to win elections. But uh, with this help, um, it became possible. What do you see in today's, uh, the, the way that uh, President's administration and the State Department and um, approach decisions that have been in Russia's favor? What, what leads you to believe that the way America is behaving now on the world stage is benefiting Putin and, and uh, Kremlin and Russian foreign policy and national interests? Well, first of all, the State Department now is in terrible shape. Uh, I personally think that there were uh, three people initially who were selected for Trump by uh, Kremlin. Uh, one was uh, Paul Manafort, who became uh, the, the chief of his uh, you know, team uh, just for three months because uh, it became clear very soon that Paul Manafort, with his uh, Ukrainian uh, quote-unquote capital, uh, is going to be damaging for for Trump in the future. So even Trump uh, could not allow himself to have him for a long time. But I think initially it was an idea coming from Kremlin, uh, probably from Alex Deripaska, who uh, knew Paul Manafort for many years, who supported him for many years, who paid him money for many years. We are probably talking about dozens of millions of dollars which uh, Manafort uh, received over the years through Deripaska. So uh, the, the connections to Oleg Deripaska, who is one of uh, Russian billionaires, uh, was very close and very, very important. And again, we have to understand that Debaska, one of the closest oligarchs to Putin, and this is not by chance that in Vietnam, for example, Debaska was as well uh, during the Putin's uh, meeting with uh, with Trump. And uh, Debaska, of course, is traveling to the United States uh, and all over the world with diplomatic passport, etc. So he is not just a businessman. He is a businessman who is very close to Putin. So this was a person who probably was behind Paul Manafort, uh, you know, uh, trying to take a position of, of the uh, chief of Trump's administration uh, initially. Uh, then, of course, uh, it was Michael Flynn. Uh, who became a uh, national uh, security advisor, and this was not by chance again, because this was a person who was known to Kremlin and close to Kremlin for some time. He started to take money from Russian companies um, months before. He then took hundreds of thousands of dollars from a Turkish businessman connected to Russia as well. And now, you know, we find more and more interesting stories about uh, Michael Flynn, but one way or another, he was a person selected for Trump by Kremlin to become a national advisor to serve as a connector between uh, probably President Putin and uh, President Trump. Uh, again, he failed. The scandal arose, and he was out uh, quite quickly. And the third person, uh, in my opinion, is uh, Rex Tillerson, 
who was very close to, to Russia for many, many years, who built both his reputation and his business career thanks to Russia, who received uh, medals personally from uh, Putin, etc., etc. And the way he conducts his business uh, as a uh, Secretary of State, uh, I think, unfortunately, is uh, tremendously damaging for for the United States. The State Department actually is ruined. There is no State Department and no American diplomacy in you know classical traditional way uh, of, of this world. Uh, Trump uh, made like several days ago a statement that it doesn't actually matter how many diplomats are working for State Department or its methods here. Uh, he, his opinion and him personally being, you know, involved in foreign policy. Uh, I, I, I think this is all, all going to be very, very damaging in the long run. I think we see this damage now. Uh, so I think what's happening is very damaging for the uh, United States foreign policy. Uh, I think it is happening uh, because uh, Tillerson is uh, trying uh, to be nice uh, to, to Trump, which is difficult for, for any person, I guess, being involved in foreign policy especially, uh, because once again Trump is trying to replace diplomacy by Twitter. This is not how this should be done, of course, especially when you deal with serious issues like, you know, possible nuclear conflict with North Korea. But, uh, but I think realistically, if we look at the subject where we have some information, because the, the information which is coming from State Department, from Tillerson, is actually very limited. I, I would say that it's probably on the level of like zero. But what we do know, when we see what's happening in places like Syria, then realistically, uh, from the moment uh, when Trump came to power, and I do not want to say that I like what, what Obama administration was doing in, in Syria. I, I didn't like it at all. But the result of Trump's uh, policy towards Syria is that Russia actually is doing the now what it wants. We do not see a single critical word again of Russia uh, operating in Syria coming from Trump. That uh, we also see that uh, we do not discuss anymore the change of the regime in Syria, that what was initially started as an operation with the goal to take Assad down for the United States uh, is definitely changed. And what's, what probably the most important is, from the geopolitical point of view, that the Iranian positions in Syria became much, much stronger. And if you talk to two major uh, American uh, allies, uh, in the region, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Both of them will tell you that this is the most troubling 
event which is happening now for them in Syria. This is the rise of influence of Iran, uh, which is uh, trying to become a, a regional superpower. And this is happening thanks to a kind of common policy of Russia and Trump in relation of uh, Syrian question. So, right, so then we're talking about um, Iran becoming a regional superpower, and Iran is on good terms right now with Russia. So, um, this, so United States inadvertently helping Iran, um, even though continuing to criticize the nuclear deal, is actually still helping Russia's friend. Well, Russia is the only supporter of Iran. Let's put it this way. Uh, you do not actually to see too many countries, both in the region and outside the region, who are uh, in support of uh, current Iranian regime. Russia is the only one. And, uh, and for this reason, when Trump is refusing to be critical of Russian policy towards Iran or Russian uh, behavior in Syria, uh, yes, he's actually helping Russia to restore uh, Iranian power. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, remember that you can also check out this program on YouTube and also subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts. Just look up Rashkin Report and there you will find it. Um, our, my guest today is uh, one of the most well-known authors and historians in the history of um, KGB and FSB, which is uh, Federal Security Bureau in Russia, kind of the took over from KGB. It seems like, uh, you know, let, let's take a look at that for a second. Why do you feel that um, Russian secret services need to update their uh, naming so regularly? It seems like they were, uh, you know, Cheka in the beginning of 1917. They became NKVD. Then they became KGB. Or, you know, I'm, I could be missing some steps. Why is it so important to keep renaming the secret service? Well, because initially, and sorry to go deep into history, but initially since 1917, when Bolsheviks took power in Russia and the, the first Russian Soviet secret service was created, the secret service was started its own struggle uh, against the Communist Party for political control of the whole country. And it's only... Uh, during Andropov's years, this is after Brezhnev died, uh, finally the, the KGB took control of the whole country for a short time because Andropov died very soon. And uh, this was the first time when the former KGB leader became general secretary of the Communist Party. And believe it or not, but the second time when the former uh, FSB uh, leader uh, became president of the country uh, is the case of uh, Vladimir Putin. That's why uh, Putin actually likes Andropov very much and respects him very much. And there is a lot of respect to Andropov in today's Russia coming from the very, very top. Uh, it's because this was the realization of uh, old, well, 
kind of old, 100 years old. A historical dream. Uh, the, the KGB finally took control over the whole country, over Russia. And because this is the first time in history when secret police, a secret service, takes control over Russia, uh, over any huge country, let's put it this way, uh, we still have difficulties to explain what actually is happening uh, in, in Russia, because we never have this kind of experience. We've never seen it. We've seen dictators who are ruling in countries. We've seen monarchs and democratic governments and political parties. But we've never seen a secret, a secret police and the institution taking political and economic control over the whole country. And that's, that's why we still have difficulties to figure out what is actually happening in Russia. But in reality, this is all very simple. This is the old KGB, the new FSB, uh, which took control of a huge uh, superpower and now rule in this country without any political control from the top. Because in the Soviet years, this was Politburo, the Communist Party, which was above the KGB. Now the KGB rules uh, Russia without any political control. And this is both damaging and dangerous because this organization, this structure, never actually was trained to, to build. Uh, people who were selected to work for this organization, they were trained you know, to, to kill, to suppress, to, to control, but they never trained to build. And that's why, uh, you know, Putin, who, when he became the president in 2000 and who started to promote to major government and political positions other FSB officers, uh, is now created the system when instead of building Russia or rebuilding Russia, using huge circles of money which is coming from sale of oil and gas, indeed is using this money to destroy other countries. And that's, that's, this is our major problem, that instead of trying to raise Russia to the level of the United States and Europe, through developing Russia economically and politically, through reforming Russia, he is actually trying to damage both the United States and Europe to kind of low United States and Europe to the level of Russia, you see. That's, uh, he is trying to get an equality, but not through the developing Russia, but through the destruction of the rest of the world. Is he interested, well, he's not interested in just destroying the world for the sake of destroying the world. What do you feel is the end goal of, of uh, Putin's efforts? Well, you see, sometimes, unfortunately, it becomes just a pure destruction. If you look at two Chechens' war, uh, wars which uh, Russia had, uh, this was a, a destruction. If you think about Russian invasion, uh, of Georgia and especially of eastern Ukraine, this was a destruction. There, is, there was nothing positive, you know, reached by, by the uh, invasion of eastern Ukraine. Everything was ruined. Uh, if you see what Russia is doing in Syria 
this is mainly destruction. So that's what they know how to do, to, to destruct. When it comes to building or to rebuilding, this is, of course, more difficult. But I, but I think what Putin is trying to do, he is trying to uh, create enough house uh, so the other countries would be involved in their domestic, uh, you know, situations and will not have uh, time and ability and maybe even resources uh, to, to deal with uh, global uh, issues. And this would allow uh, Putin probably to continue conduct his aggressive policy, which has started if we talk about uh, foreign uh, foreign political issues in 2008 when they invaded Georgia, because this was the first time when the Russian army was used outside the Russian borders since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it, it was uh, changed in 2008. And uh, that's why we see Russian aggressiveness from time to time, you know, like in 2008 in Georgia, in 2014 in Ukraine. But Russia is still not powerful enough to uh, simply, you know, take territories. And I'm quite sure that if Putin would think for a moment that he has an opportunity to take additional territories, he will use this opportunity. And we uh, mainly are talking about uh, the rest of Ukraine, we probably are talking about the Baltic states. A quiet annexation of uh, Belarus actually took place uh, last year, and uh, now the Russian troops are controlling the, the Belarus border uh, with the rest of the world. So uh, Putin is getting territories when he has chance uh, to take them. Uh, he just at this point does not uh, believe that NATO would allow him to take more territories. That's why it was very important for him uh, you know, to destroy NATO or to abolish this system. Uh, and that's why this uh, point about dissolvement of NATO, you know, remember that famous slogan of Trump, NATO being obsolete, uh, became a very important point in the foreign uh, political program uh, of Trump. Again, this was uh, forced into Trump uh, program, Trump's program by, by Kremlin, because that's what was the, the goal of Putin, the destruction of NATO. And then, of course, another strategic goal is the uh, dissolvement of the European Union. That's why you see uh, a lot of support and many attempts of Russia to select, to support, sorry, those governments uh, or candidates in uh, Europe uh, who uh, probably uh, would uh, take uh, away their countries from European Union. That's why they support uh, ultra-right in France. Uh, we, we also have seen uh, an attempt of the Russian government to, uh, to have actually military coup d'etat in Montenegro, in Chernogore. So uh, Russia, Russia is trying to damage everywhere it's able to damage uh, using different tools depending on the situation. Sometimes they just, uh, you know, invade 
like in Crimea or like in eastern Ukraine. Sometimes they try to organize coup d'etat like in Montenegro. Uh, sometimes they try to influence elections like in France or in the United States. In the United States they were successful. In France they failed. Uh, we probably uh, are missing some cases where Russia succeeded, and I'm afraid of those two cases in particular. Uh, in Eastern Europe uh, is uh, Czech Republic and Hungary. I think that's where Russia was successful quietly uh, during the elections, uh, because these particular leaders of these particular two countries are suspiciously pro-Russian and pro-Putin, uh, etc. So Russia is very active. They are trying to support the separatist movement in uh, Barcelona and Catalonia. Uh, they are probably going to support in the near future the creation of Kurdistan because this is the way to uh, destroy uh, both uh, the, the current regime in Turkey and, uh, and NATO. So uh, uh, there are many ways to damage, and there are, uh, you know, probably the best minds, quote unquote, uh, of the FSB are thinking about uh, this, uh, you know, think how, how where, to, where to damage and how damage how to damage the West. So then, do you feel that a war is underway, and and that you know there is a conflict already between Russia and the United States, and how do we win in this? What's an effective way of standing up to this sort of Russian aggression? Well, I think we were witnessing uh, a period which is which was very risky in 2014 when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, and it was not clear whether Russia would stop in eastern Ukraine or would proceed further with aggression and would try to take the whole Ukraine and to to unite its territories uh, with uh, uh, the, the Moldova uh, Republic, uh, where again uh, a, a part of the country is un technically is under, practically is under military occupation of the Russian uh, government of the Russian army. Uh, it was not clear in 2014, in April, May 2014, whether Russia would try to invade the Baltic states. The rhetoric was, uh, you know, very serious and very risky. This was. A time, if you remember, when Russian planes were flying along the, the foreign borders, including the Great Britain, uh, United States, even when uh, Russian submarines were, you know, swimming near Finland and Sweden, and both those countries became very nervous because they were not members of NATO and were thinking about jumping quickly, you know, to to join NATO. This was a very, very risky and very serious period. It kind of passed. I think it became clear by the end of the year that Putin is not ready. It became clear to Putin, Putin that he is not ready to risk a major war because the signals which were sent by NATO uh, were telling about the war which is coming to Russia if Russia would continue the aggression until if Russia will invade the NATO country. Uh, but uh, 
But now we have to look into slightly different direction because we have a very uh, critical situation now with North Korea. Uh, we, we hate this regime, of course. We do not like North Korea. Uh, you do not find a single person in the United States who does. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm afraid that the North Korean uh, military conflict, or conflict between North Korea and the United States, if it leads to a major conflict between South Korea and North Korea. In other words, if we are facing the possibility of the Second Korean War, then this would open for Putin uh, opportunities to start to negotiate with the United States. Uh, his non-involvement into Korean War in exchange for something else. And looking at the history of Russian involvement in Syria, we know how this is done. So on, on, as stage number one, uh, you basically start to be involved into conflict in Syria. In stage number two, it becomes clear to everybody who is involved in the conflict that Russia is actually a player now, and you have to deal with Russia if you want to achieve something. For example, peace, or for example, the change of regime in, in Syria. And uh, we see that once Russia is actually inside, like in Syria, it's actually very difficult to, to get them out. Uh, and uh, it's probably how it's, this is going to be with North Korea as well. Uh, and unfortunately, with, in case of North Korea, Russia has actually even come on board with North Korea. So it's, it would be much easier for Russia to support North Korea if a real conflict starts between North Korea and the United States. Now, having President Trump in the White House I would say that what we see now about Russia being helpful in Syrian uh, issue is, you know, just a small talk in comparison to what Trump is going to explain to us uh, how useful could be Russia if we want to deal with North Korea. Uh, indeed, I may tell you now that Russia is not going to be useful at all, that Russia is going to play against the United States. I'm sure that Russia is playing against the United States even now in relation to our problems with North Korea. But for Putin, once again, this would create a lot of opportunities for trade. And what he would ask... Uh, uh, in exchange for his non-involvement into North Korean uh, dash South Korean war, uh, you know, we could just imagine now. So, well, that would be probably back to removing sanctions and okaying annexation of Crimea and and trying to kind of come back as a one of one of the good old boys club. For Russia, right? Well, this depends. This depends, of course, of of the seriousness of the war. This depends, of course, uh, and I think we do not know at this point how damaging this war is going to be, how expensive it's going to be in terms of uh, losses of human lives. Uh, do you expect a second Korean War? 
I do. I do. I do expect uh, this war to, to, you know, to become a reality. Uh, look, uh, we, it's, you, you know, looking at North Korea today, we probably think that, well, we, we actually should strike much earlier. And, and this is the problem with this kind of conflict. Every time the conflict happens, uh, we understand that well. We actually were in much better position like ten days, ten years ago, right, to strike. Uh, but that's what the history and life is. Uh, unless we find the way to change the regime in North Korea, unless we find the way to unite North Korea and South Korea, the way two Germanys were united after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think we are facing the real possibility of military conflict between North Korea and the United States. Now, I'm not a, a military expert at all. Okay. I do not know how, how uh, damaging the first strike of the United States against North Korea is going to be. I do not know if the regime of North Korea will collapse under this strike and after this strike or not. Uh, I just do not know this. I, I, I think uh, actually the uh, you know, military leaders of the United States who are responsible for this kind of questions probably do not think that we have an opportunity to strike against North Korea without risking a war. Otherwise, I think this would be done by now. With all this rhetoric which we hear coming from Trump, I think if we would know that we could you know, just strike North Korea and destroy the, 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 the regime or the, its nuclear arsenal with the first strike, I think we would do it. I think the only reason this is not done is because it's clear that this will lead to the Second Korean War. So do you feel then that the solution to uh, the situation in North Korea lies really not in North Korea, but somewhere else, like in Moscow? Or do you feel that Beijing has more control over what, what develops there? Well, I think both countries, uh, Russia and Beijing and China, uh, have a uh, certain influence over North Korea. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, I think we have to understand that this kind of dictatorships uh, have a certain level of uh, un uncontrolled existence. Because uh, we were witnessing several dictatorships uh, which... Uh, actually, at the end, uh, preferred to destroy their own countries and not to, to you know, to, 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 to leave power. We've seen it with Iraq, we've seen it with, uh, with Libya. Um, it goes against our philosophy and our way of thinking. Uh, we always think that at the end, a dictator would, uh, you know, prefer to save his country, his nation, his people, 
and will peacefully leave the, the power. But somehow this is not usually happening. So I, I think it would be, you know, just just a, a dream for us to think that leadership of North Korea would uh, decide to to change the behavior, to liberalize regime, uh, etc. I think this is not going to happen. Period. This is not going to happen. And uh, I think uh, both Russia and China have, uh, you know, certain limits of what they're able to do. Is there force to to uh, to reform the current uh, North Korean regime again? I. Uh, if we just forget about this country, if we agree that we should introduce very heavy sanctions, uh, we, we may get some results, but again, it's questionable because we probably do not even understand uh, completely whether North Korea would be able to exist as a separate, uh, completely isolated uh, state. And the, the answer is probably yes. It's just, uh, you know, uh, they may suffer, people may die of hunger, but again, we were uh, living and we are living uh, in time when millions of people, hundreds of thousands at least, uh, in some particular countries are dying of hunger and the governments uh, are not actually ready to change anything and do anything and uh, not ready to open their borders, not open, not ready to open the countries to, to, to foreigners for some political or internal reason. So uh, I think that the, 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 the world we live in, so we, we better uh, try not to dream about the, the best situation, but try to understand what the worst possible case is. And the worst possible case is that we are going to have Second Korean War, that people are going to be lost, uh, and uh, lives are going to be lost, and uh, Russia will use this opportunity uh, to deal with their strategic goals. And since we do know what the strategic goals are, and this is the, the recreation of a kind of empire, whether you call it new Russian empire, old Russian empire, Soviet empire, doesn't really matter. But uh, we, we had enough statements from Putin uh, to understand that he's trying to enlarge territory, that he's mainly interested in those territories, the Soviet uh, Union, especially when we are talking Euro about uh, uh, European uh, part of the Soviet Union. So we basically know where he, his ambitions are, what he wants to take. Uh, so I think it's very realistic to be afraid of this particular, uh, you know, uh, military uh, plans which Putin may have in his mind. And just waits for the opportunities uh, to realize these plans. And I think the, the best opportunity for him uh, will come if uh, a, a Korean War becomes a, a reality and a serious issue. And since we 
know that Putin is not, you know, a peaceful, friendly, nice guy who dreams about peace and prosperity for his own nation. I think it's fair to suspect him uh, in being a kind of provocateur who is trying to provoke North Korea to have conflict with the United States. So I would not be surprised if at the end of the day, whenever this day will come, we will find out that this was the Russian government who was helping North Korea to develop nuclear programs and weapons, who was uh, helping helping them with uh, tests, and who, what what is important, supported them uh, secretly, politically, you know, just telling them that if 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 the conflict with the United States become reality, Russia definitely would help North Korea, and they probably will. Yuri, in conclusion, the the only other question that uh, I really want to get your perspective on is. Um, Kremlin and Putin seems to pay a lot of attention to what's going on with uh, different revolutions around the world. Um, there's a strong theory that Putin decided to come back to presidency after being a prime minister and become president again after what he saw with Arab Spring and what happened in Libya specifically uh, with Muammar Gaddafi and so forth. Um, we just are really almost in the process of watching uh, a coup take place in Zimbabwe in, in Africa. And Zimbabwe has been almost jokingly compared to Russia as one of the few remaining you know, total dictatorships, uh, where dictator has been in power for a very, very, very long time, you know, 30-some-odd years. So what are your thoughts on how Zimbabwe's scenario is being watched um, by uh, Kremlin and what conclusions they're making out of this, considering that technically there is a presidential election coming up in Russia in just a few months? Uh, well, uh, I do not... Putin as a dictator. I would say our problems would be much more uh, serious if Putin would be just another dictator, because then we we know how this would end. We take down dictator and the country reforms itself. Unfortunately, this is not the case uh, in Russia. I see Putin as a person who represents the, the system or the institution. Uh, this institution uh, is mainly uh, includes uh, former FSB operatives, uh, some people from other power structures like military, like generals, some from internal affairs. Some actually are some came from criminal world when when criminal world beca- became part of the Russian government in uh, early 90s. So, but that's that's how it is. I do not really think that something dramatically uh, will change in Russia if uh, Putin or whatever dies tomorrow. I do not think this will lead to great changes. Uh, that's that's. Uh, Probably why I do not think that Putin is frightened of what happens to, to small dictators all over the world. I, I, I do not think he is afraid of this kind of revolution. Uh, indeed, if you look into Russian history, revolutions are very seldom there, and usually they do not 
come from the bottom, they usually start from the top. It's usually the, the top, the, the elite uh, which starts the revolution in uh, Russia. They also actually happened uh, usually as a result of a defeat uh, in a war. This was uh, the story of the first Russian revolution after the defeat of the Russian army uh, in a war against Japan. This was the story of the second Russian revolution because the second Russian revolution of 1917 took place during the uh, First World War. And even the collapse of the Soviet Union actually happened uh, during the, the uh, Soviet war in Afghanistan, which for the Soviet Union uh, was not going uh, quite well. So uh, I, I do not think Putin is afraid of revolution. I do not think he is afraid of coup d'etat or he is afraid being taken down by, by the Russian people. Uh, and since they do not really have elections, unfortunately uh, for us, Putin has no chance to lose them. So we do know that in 2018 he would become the next president of Russia. I think we would be naive to think that there is a possibility that somebody else would be. So, no, it's going to be Putin. Whether at one point he would leave his position as the president, I do not really think so. Uh, whether he will find a way to extend his term in 2024, uh, I think it's very possible he, believe it or not, he may put uh, Medvedev for another term and then would come as president again. You know, everything is possible in Russia when we talk about keeping power in hands of, you know, real president. And Putin now is a real president with no intentions to resign. Yuri Filstinsky, author, historian, thank you so much once again for being on our program and bringing a lot of clarity to this very interesting subject. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. You're listening to Rashkin Report.